0: Uh, Well, I'm excited to get into God's word with you this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Genesis, uh, the very first book in the Bible. And in just a little bit, we'll read from Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11. So you can go ahead and make your way there. If you want to use your Bible app, that's fine. And we'll have the uh, verses on the screen uh, behind me. But last week, I was not here. I was in the Dominican Republic, and uh, it's good to be back and'm excited to continue uh, in the series that we've been in over uh, the last several weeks, called "King Jesus." And this is a sermon series where our goal is for all of us to be convinced from the Bible uh, that our joy is found in submitting to Jesus as our king and our authority, that our joy would be found there. And so what we're going to do as we make progress through this series, as we one of the things we have been doing is building a theology. Uh, What we've been doing, putting together these statements, these very simple statements that help us summarize what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves and who God made us to be so that we can understand how God has called us to live in this life and what it really means to submit to Jesus as our king. And so as we're building this theology, what we've done is we're dividing this series into four chapters. And so over the last several weeks, we've been in chapter one. Uh, It's a chapter that we've been calling The King Rejected because what we're doing is we're studying from the Old Testament how God created us, But then what happened? What happened in the world? Uh, We rejected God. Why did we reject God? And what are the consequences of that in our world? And so what we're gonna do this morning and what we're gonna continue to do over the next few weeks is sit in the Old Testament and really look at why did God's creation walk away from him? And what happened? What's the effect in the world? How has that affected us? And so this has been a time of looking into that to these hard truths in the scripture. But then we're gonna be able to move into the next chapters and see how God has pursued us and redeemed us from our rejection of him. And so this morning, we're gonna continue in this first chapter. But I wanna remind us all of, of where we've been. So our first week in the series, we studied creation in Genesis chapters one and two. And this was the theological statement that we studied together, it was this. In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. And we studied the fact that God created us in his image. We are image bearers of God, meaning that we were designed and created to represent God with every single part of our lives, that God is the center of all of creation. He is the center of our lives. That's where our joy is found. That's who he created us to be. In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. And then the next week we studied the fall in Genesis chapter three, and we studied how man fell into sin and rejected God. And so this was the statement that we put in. The next week was this, in sin... I have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of my story, right? That the essence of sin is that we've rejected our purpose as being image bearers of God. And we said, you know what? I want to bear my own image. I want my life, my needs, my desires to be the center of my story. And we've become inherently selfish people in the fall who care about ourselves more than God, more than others. And this has broken creation. It has brought evil and suffering into the world and we've been exiled from God's presence because we've rejected God and now become God's enemy, according to scripture. And so those are the first two. And so if you've missed those two, I really encourage you to go to our website And or our podcast and listen to those, to wrestle with these statements and these hard truths so that you can get caught up in this series. This is definitely one of those series that builds on itself. Um, But this morning, what we need to do is, we need to do more work to understand how we are wired now as fallen humanity to make ourselves the center of the story and why that's offensive to God why that's destructive to the world, and why that completely robs us of our joy. And so here's the statement for the morning that we're gonna look at. It's this. There is no joy when I am the center of my story. There is no joy when I am the center of my story. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do this every week. We're gonna repeat our statements back because I want this to get into our heads. I want us to begin to have this sink into our hearts So let's say all three together. I want you to do this out loud with me. So the first one was this, ready? In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. The second statement is in sin, I have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of my story. And this morning's statement is this, there is no joy when I am the center of my story. Joy is a word we use a lot around here. Uh, That's because the vision of our church is that we wanna be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus. We believe that your joy is only found in Jesus. And, And that's a lot of what we're gonna talk about this morning, but what do we mean by this word, joy? Uh, when we use the word joy, are we just talking about being happy all the time, always being in a good mood? Uh, what, what is this thing joy? And so here's my definition of joy that I'm working off of is this. We experience joy when all of our needs and all of our desires are fulfilled. That's joy. When all of our needs and all our desires are fulfilled, we can truly rest and live in joy because we're full we don't lack anything, all right? That's joy. And so joy is different than happiness. Happiness is more circumstantial. You can be having a great day, good mood, beautiful weather outside, got a promotion at work, and feel happy and then get rear-ended on the beltway and the happiness is gone, right? It's circumstantial. It's just gone. So joy is something that kind of transcends circumstances. Even when you're experiencing hard things, or annoying things or frustrating things. Joy is something where your, your soul is kind of settled into this state where you're, you're filled up. Uh, joy is something that can be a filter through which you interpret the circumstances of life, good or bad. And so it's, it's different. It transcends circumstances. And then we have this thing called the kingdom of God. So we have joy, and I think joy is something we can experience in this life. And then we have this thing, the kingdom of God. And the the kingdom of God is this place where all of our circumstances and all of our relationships do not threaten our joy, but contribute to it, all right? That's the kingdom, this place where our needs are fulfilled, our desires are fulfilled, and our environment doesn't threaten our joy. And if you haven't noticed yet, we do not live right now in the kingdom of God. We can experience it, we can taste it, but we don't live in it yet. And so here's the deal. Here's what we all need to understand. Ever since you were born, every single day of your life, you have pursued joy and you have pursued the kingdom. You just have. That is how you're wired. It's how God created you. He created you to pursue those things. It is good and right to pursue joy and to pursue the kingdom. You have pursued your desires and needs to be fulfilled, and you've pursued a place and environment where nothing will threaten that. And so if you want to know where you believe joy is found, look at the decisions you make every day and that'll help you understand where do you believe your joy is really found. And if you want to know how you think we ought to get to the kingdom or how to pursue the kingdom, look at what you complain about every day and you'll begin to know how you pursue the kingdom. Uh, My alarm goes off every single morning at 5 a.m. And when I get out of bed to turn off my alarm, because I have to have my alarm away from my bed or I will snooze it, um, I immediately begin to make calculations in my head about where my joy is found. Uh, Now, if I'm thinking rightly, I know that my day will be much better, be way more productive, way more joyful if I stay out of bed, spend some time with Jesus, go for a run, eat a good breakfast, and spend time with my family before I'm out the door to go to work. I know if I do that in the morning, usually my day is pretty good. But at 5 a.m., Many times, my calculations tell me that joy is actually found in a little more sleep. Either way, no matter what decision, I'm pursuing joy. Now, here's what usually happens when I do that. If I go back to bed, all right, uh, usually the kids will then become my alarm clock. They will wake up, all right? And if both came and I are in bed at that time and our kids wake up and come and jump in our bed, usually one of us will say, why are they awake, Ah, see, now I'm pursuing the kingdom, the kingdom of God, right? I want an environment. I want a place that doesn't threaten where I find my joy. So I start to complain, right? Why are they awake? Why are they bothering me? Why are they doing this? Because in my mind, the kingdom is a place where I can sleep as late as I want, and no one will threaten that, right? If sleep is where our joy is found then it's wrong for anyone to threaten that. So I've made a decision where our joy, my joy is found, and I'm complaining that my environment doesn't support that. Because we're always pursuing joy. We're always pursuing the kingdom, right? If you want to know where you think joy is found, look at your everyday decisions. Look at your bank statement and what you spend money on. Look at your calendar and what you say yes to and no to. You'll be able to figure out what you really believe about this. If you want to know how you pursue the kingdom, look at what causes you to complain. What do you complain about at work? What do you complain about other people? That will help you figure out how you pursue the kingdom. But here's what I need us to understand this morning. God has wired us to pursue joy. He has wired us to pursue the kingdom. That's how we're built, but we're fallen now. The lens through which we make these calculations and what will bring us joy and where the kingdom is and all of that, it's, it's broken, it's faulty. We were created by God to bear his image, to represent him in every single part of our life. That is where our joy is found. That is what the kingdom is like. But in sin, we've decided we'd rather bear our own image, represent ourselves, cut God out of that equation. And Romans one twenty two says that we thought we were being wise when we did that, but we were really being fools. Because we think our joy is found in being all about ourselves, at the, even at the expense of others. We think the kingdom is a place where nobody will challenge us on that. And the truth is, the only thing we are bringing into our lives in this world is, is brokenness. So, in love, God created me not to be the center of my story. In sin, I've abused God, others and creation, in order to be the center of my story. And there is no joy in that. There's no joy in it. And so, this morning, I want to I show you two places in Scripture. Both of these are after the fall where we see examples of how when we make ourselves the center, we only invite brokenness into our lives. And so two places in Scripture I want to show you this. The first is in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, We're a few chapters here after the fall in Genesis 11, and uh, and Genesis here, in great detail, uh, records how the fall of mankind has brought sin and evil into the world. Uh, Everyone, after the fall, was pursuing joy in sinful, evil, and counterproductive ways. If you look at uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it it says this. uh, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty strong language there, right? Everyone was pursuing joy for themselves in evil, counterproductive ways. And so in Genesis 11, we read about a very clear example of mankind doing something actually pretty remarkable, but with a heart that was sinful. So look at this, Genesis 11, verses one to nine. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So in this example, we see mankind do something actually remarkable. Uh, They had advanced in technology. They invented bricks and mortar to be able to build buildings They had studied engineering to figure out how to do that so buildings wouldn't crumble. They unified themselves under a common goal of building this big building. Mankind was subduing the earth just as God had commanded Adam and Eve to do. We talked about that two weeks ago, what that means. But what was the purpose? What was the goal? They said, come, let's do this. Why? Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's do something so grand that we might even become superior to God himself. In our effort, in our technology, in our skills, in our plans, let's bear our own image. If we think about our work, uh, whether you work in a vocation or you work in the home, if you think about work, how much of our effort and our drive is motivated by making a name for ourselves? How much of our drive and motivation is to represent God in his ways in our work? This is how we begin to look to our work as the source of our joy and our pathway to the kingdom and not God. And in God's graciousness, he went down and confused their language. That was grace. God said, I am going to stop this plan before it gets way out of control because I love you and I'm gonna graciously not let you keep going in what you're doing. And he spread them throughout the earth because accomplishing great things for the glory of man is sin and God thwarted them from going too far in it. But let me give you another example. Turn in your Bibles over to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. So next, next book over. I want you to see another example In order to show you how pervasive this is in our hearts. Genesis 11 was an example of how we tend to make ourselves the center of our work. Exodus 32 is going to show us how we tend to make ourselves the center of our religion and our worship. Look at this. Exodus 32. Uh, Let me give you a little background. This is uh, the nation of Israel. God just rescued them from their slavery to Egypt. They've been wandering through the desert and they're camped out at Mount Sinai. And while they're at Mount Sinai, uh, Moses went up the mountain because God is speaking to him, giving him his word, etching some stuff on some stone tablets to give to Moses. So Moses on the mountain, hearing from God, the people of God are down at the base of the mountain waiting for Moses to return. That's where we're at. Look what happens. Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they were getting impatient the people gathered themselves uh, together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, remember, now we're Moses and God up on the mountain. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I mean, this is one of those moments where you say to your, your spouse, like, your son just did this. That's why he says, your people... They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. The people of Israel watched God perform countless miracles to rescue them from their slavery in Egypt. They walked across the Red Sea on dry ground with a wall of water on either side because God split the Red Sea open, let them pass through, and as the Egyptian army pursued them, put it back down on top of them. They saw this with their eyes. And then they get to this mountain. Moses goes up to talk to God, and they get impatient. That's all it took. Waiting impatience for these people to forsake God, to abandon God. So they decide to create a different God and worship it and give that false God credit for saving them from Egypt. And they worship, this is what blows my mind. They worship passionately. They danced, they sacrificed, they feasted. It even said they played in the presence of this hunk of metal. Right, how quickly do we begin to question God when He doesn't do the things we think He ought to do them or in the time frame that we think He ought to do them in? How quickly do we begin to question God when He does things that we don't understand or even agree with? But He's so quick to move on. And what that reveals is that our sinful nature can be so pervasive that even our faith can be motivated by our desire to be the center of our lives. That even our faith is just a tool we use to make ourselves the the center. See, here's what Genesis 11 and Exodus 32 have in common. In both scriptures, you have a group of people who out of a desire for joy and a desire for the kingdom organized themselves to build something that they think will bring them joy in the kingdom. And it was all in spite of the king. You have people in both scriptures who desire the kingdom of God without God. It's the kingdom without the king. They want the benefits of utopia without any external authority who can tell them what to do or how to live or what they were created and designed for. Right, so here's what I want us to all understand this morning. This idea, the kingdom without the king, the kingdom of God without God, this is the definition of secularism. This is what secularism is. It's this belief that humanity can achieve the kingdom, can achieve utopia by elevating self and shedding off external authority. And we live in a context right now in America where secularism is leaking into our faith and it's wrecking havoc in the church, in our country. Think about it. We live in the most wealthy, technologically advanced, culturally diverse, interconnected place in all of human history. Right? We, have, we have instant access to global information. You can live broadcast instantaneously 4K video from the device in your pocket to the world. You can drive five minutes down the road to Dulles Airport and be anywhere in the world within hours. You can get a device, that device in your pocket, pull it out, and you can have any product in the world at your doorstep tomorrow. That's crazy. I mean, if you think about the times that we live in, it's crazy. And All of this wealth and advancement puts us in a context, kind of like the Tower of Babel, where we begin to believe that joy and the kingdom is within our reach without having to submit to any authority like God. Right. Even our political and ideological context here puts us in a precarious position to allow secularism to come into our faith. Uh, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, both major political parties and ideologies in this country are after the same exact thing. They just preach it in different ways. Uh, and our wealth and our context in this country allows us to have this debate See, conservatism preaches liberty, rights, uh, the freedom for you to make or break your life, that everyone has the same opportunity in this country, and we need to fight against the external authority called government from limiting our liberty and our opportunity. Liberalism preaches the same thing. They just use different words. right? Right? They preach self-expression, justice for the oppressed, and the need to help everyone have the same outcome in life. All we need to do is fight the external authority of tradition, morality, social institutions, right? Both look to shedding authority and the elevation of self as the pathway to the kingdom, and neither are biblical. Neither of them. This is how secularism has influenced our faith. It has made our faith extracurricular. It has made it supplemental, it has made it as a way in which you can elevate self and not deny self. Right, the way we practice Christianity has turned into a Sunday morning experience and then you're free to decide how much else you want it to impact the rest of your life. If it contributes to your life, great, but if it gets in the way, if it limits us, if it ties us down, reject. It's become, you know, compartmentalized It's like we have a a part of us that's faith, it's our belief in God, and in different parts of our lives. And I think we all struggle with this in different ways and shapes and forms. I think commitment to the local church, it's become a convenience, not a calling. Something to consume, not something to own and take a responsibility for, a family of faith. Right? We don't see our faith as our pathway to joy in the kingdom as much as other things. This is kind of the trend of the church in our country today. I think Mark Sayers says it really well in his book. He says, we attempt to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. We intuitively yearn for the justice and the shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. And if you just go one chapter over in Exodus to chapter 33, we read from it earlier. It's interesting because God essentially tells Moses, you guys can have what you want. He essentially tells Moses, You guys can have the kingdom, and I will not go with you. I will not be there as the king. You can have whatever you want. Look at this, Exodus 33, verses one to four. Look at what God says. This is after the golden calf incident. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go from here, you and the people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offsprings, I will give it. This is the promised land. The, the place that the people were gonna go. I will send an angel before you, all right? And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Jebusites, I'll, anyone who's gonna stand in your way, I'll send an angel before you and he'll just clear a path. I'll pave the way to the kingdom for you. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on their ornaments. So God essentially tells Moses that he'll make it easy for Israel to get to the promised land. He'll take care of their enemies. He'll make sure they're well fed, they're secure. He'll, He'll give them everything. There'll be wealth. They'll have the kingdom. But God will not be with them. He would not go with them. And it says this was a disastrous word because there is no joy without the king. There is no true kingdom without the king. So look at Moses' response in verses 15 to 17 where Moses says, and he said to him, Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said that they cannot proceed without God because it is the presence of God in our lives. It is his authority in our lives. It is his word that governs our lives, that makes us distinct in the world, that allows us to have joy that the world longs for. And so Moses declines the offer, the offer for all the goods of the kingdom and yet no king. And it forces us to ask the question, Would we take the offer? Think about it. If God said, listen, here's the deal. I'll give you everything you want. You can have money and wealth, as much money as you ever can imagine. I'll give you great, amazing experiences, you know, all kinds of trips and vacations, great food, companionship, pleasure, no enemies. I mean, this would be like the matrix. Anything you want to do, I'll just download it into your brain, right? If you want to fly a helicopter, boom, you can fly a helicopter. We'll just make it happen for you. I'll give you everything you want. But you can't have me. Would do we take that deal? Where do we believe our joy is truly found? Is it found in bearing the image of God being His people, submitting to His authority? Or is it bearing our own image, being our own person, shedding off any other authority? What parts of your life has secularism convinced you to keep God out? This secular age wants to convince us that joy in the kingdom is within reach, that we're getting closer, that we don't need him. Sometimes we get convinced of that. You know, I was thinking about this just last night. I I have a pastor friend in the area about 10 years ago, his son, at two and a half years old, was diagnosed with leukemia. They found it. They beat it. It was years of chemo and just terrible treatment, but they, he went into remission, was in remission for a long time, and he finally just got a clean bill of health last year. And it's moments like that where you can be tempted into thinking, we don't need God. Look, look, look at how close we are. I mean, we can beat cancer now. I mean, this is amazing. Look at what we can do. But they found out this week that leukemia is back. It's a 12-year-old boy. It's incredible what we're able to do medically. It's incredible how we've advanced in knowledge. God wants us to do that. That's good. That's right. But we are not in the kingdom. And sometimes we get hard reminders of that like gut-wrenching reminders of that. And we need a joy that transcends our circumstances and a hope that one day we will be in God's kingdom where nothing will threaten that joy. We can live our lives here all alone, trusting in ourselves, holding tightly to our lives, believing the preaching of the secular culture. Or we can be God's people But we can be people who entrust our whole lives to God's leadership and authority. And we can be people who have joy and peace even when we have to face suffering and death. And that joy is only found in Jesus because it's Jesus who not only makes us right with God, but it's Jesus who begins to change our heart, who gives us a heart that sees the beauty in not rejecting the king, but in submitting to the king a heart that wants to be distinct from the world, to be his, a, a heart that believes that there is not one aspect of our lives, I mean, nothing, that there's not one relationship or conversation or expenditure or business deal or weekend or whatever it is, there's not one part of our lives where God does not say, mine, it's mine. It represents me, that's what that's for. And the paradox of the kingdom of God is that our joy is found in surrendering our lives, not controlling our lives. And Jesus has invited us into this joy and peace by surrendering his own life on the cross for us. And maybe this morning is a morning where it's time for you to surrender yours. Maybe your entire Christian faith has been kind of a golden calf experience where your faith was just a way of making you the center. And this morning is the morning where you confess that to God. Stop questioning him. Allow the grace of God through Jesus Christ to come over you and forgive you and restore you and redeem you. And begin to submit to his word and his authority in your life maybe your faith has been left to the sidelines of your life and you've spent your life trying to make a name for yourself and maybe this morning is the morning that you just lay that in front of the cross and invite God into all of your life not just Sundays but we need to make a decision are we all in as God's people or are we going to believe the secular narrative because we can't have both who is your king And that's what God has called us to do at Grace Hill, to be a local community of people who reject the preaching of the culture, who reject this idea of secularism, that we can achieve the kingdom without God, who submit to King Jesus, who taste the kingdom of God together and point our suffering world to the only source of joy without apology. We live in a context that wants us to reject the authority of God. They want us to do it. They will pressure you into doing it. They will persecute you until you do it. It is our context now. It is unpopular to submit to King Jesus. But that is where our joy is found. And how will people know who we belong to unless we are distinct and we submit to King Jesus with our lives? And that is my prayer and our desire and hope for us as a church. And let me pray for that right now. Let's pray. God, we are so blessed to live where we live, And to have the freedoms that we have, to have the wealth and technology that we have. None of us needs to apologize for living where we live and enjoying the freedoms that we have. But God, we also recognize that it puts us in a position where we can be so easily convinced that we don't need you. It can put us in this position where we can be entitled and we believe we deserve certain things. We get frustrated when we don't get them. Puts us in a position, Lord, where we are so easily persuaded by the culture around us that it would be better for us to submit to our own authority rather than submit to you. And so God, I just pray for our church. That Lord, we would be a church that just trusts our entire lives to you and your word. Not in a haughty, self-righteous way, but in a humble, we are nothing but have received the grace of Jesus Christ kind of way. That we'd be a joyful people in the midst of a suffering world that we'd be a people that when we come together, we taste the kingdom of God. So God, would you create that here at Grace Hill Church so that, Lord, we may be distinct, not to pat ourselves on the back, but, Lord, so that we may reach people for Christ. But, Lord, in this space, teach us how we have tried to cut you out. Teach us how we have tried to compartmentalize our relationship with you. Convict our hearts. And Lord, as we have that conviction, may we come to the foot of the cross and kneel before it and receive the forgiveness that only you offer, be restored into a right relationship with you. And Lord, may we begin to experience the joy that is fully living our lives bearing your image, representing you, following your word, trusting you as the one who knows what is truly good and right. Give us that humility, God, we need it. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.